Our Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Micah, chapter 2, verse 12, up to chapter 3, verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with the people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, you who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgrace. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, thank you, Abby. Gee, it's a heavy rain, isn't it? I hope you can all hear okay up the back as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word and that your word is truth. Father, help me this morning to faithfully proclaim your truth that each one of us might hear you speaking to us, that we might respond in repentance and faith and with hope in you, our Lord and our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are times when God does something very wonderful and raises up a generation of godly leaders who are willing to serve the Lord without fear or favour, men and women whose lives are a real blessing to the church and the nation. And God enables them to rule and he empowers them to serve. Perhaps an Ezra or an Esther. A Deborah as a judge in Israel. Or a Daniel as a servant in Babylon. Or a prophet like Micah in our passage today. And by their leadership and by their courage and by the grace of God, 
Evil is constrained, justice is done, and God's word is vindicated. As it says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. This is a worldwide truth. It applies to us today. And the truth is that in Australia today, we need more godly leaders. And we need them now, don't we? We, we need to be praying, Lord, have mercy. The displeasure of God is hot upon us. I believe you can feel it in the things that are happening in our society and our world. And what we need is men and women of Christian fortitude who are willing to call sin, sin, and aren't afraid to name Jesus as Lord. We need to pray for more godly, servant-hearted leaders to be raised up by the Lord, and that God in his mercy would move by his spirit to change the hearts of many, that Australia as a nation might be exalted by righteousness and not disgraced by sin as it is today. Oh, that the Lord would be merciful to us and save us from lamentable leaders. And this is not a question of politics. It is a spiritual reality. But you can see it in the decisions and the policies that are being set in place that are changing Australia fundamentally. Things like gender fluidity, climate change and the policies that it requires of people, critical race theory, greed, violence, superstition, a rising culture of death with abortion and euthanasia and all the rest. And these are all driven, when you look at them, by an anti-Christian obsession, a desire to erase the knowledge of God from our society and to live as if God is not there. Well, our passage today reminds us that such things are nothing new. In Micah's day, the same problems were there. We've just heard the Bible reading this morning. And Micah's message is clear. I'm going to summarize it like this. I think Micah's message is you cannot mock God. You cannot mock God. You cannot twist the truth. You cannot pervert justice. You cannot condone evil or promote idolatry and expect God to bless you. Life doesn't work that way. There is a God who is our creator, who is Lord, who is sovereign, and he will always hold us to account one way or another. So let's be clear about this as we begin looking at this passage this morning. You cannot mock God and get away with it, period. It's that simple. But the good news is our passage today opens with a breathtaking word of promise. And that's why I wanted to keep this passage and hold it to start our next section this morning. A breathtaking word of promise. It's so breathtaking because it goes against the flow of everything that Micah has been saying. And it shines out like a diamond in the rough. It beams with hope and it lifts the soul with God's promises of care and compassion. So here's my outline for today. There are just two points for us to consider, although the second point has three parts to it. First, there is what I'm going to call the king's promise. This is in the end of chapter 2, 
those last two verses, 12 and 13. This is the promise that shines out so brightly, even in the darkest hour. And it is the promise that God himself will gather his elect and rescue us from captivity. Then their king will pass through before them the Lord at their head. I believe this is a strong messianic promise about the future ministry of Jesus Christ and the birth of the New Testament church. It is a glorious and breathtaking promise. It is the king's promise. But after that, you have an extended section that runs the whole length of chapter 3, which describes God's displeasure with these lamentable leaders. These leaders are greedy and they're liars, as we saw in the kids' talk. They are lamentable leaders. But Micah's ministry is spurred on by the spirit of truth to proclaim the consequences of sin to all who will hear. For the Lord will cleanse his church and clear the land before he comes to save his people and lead us to freedom. So let's start with this word of promise in verses 12 and 13. The king's promise my first point for today, the king's promise. Let's read these words again. For God says to the faithful remnant of his people in verse 12, he says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is a very strong promise. God himself is taking the initiative, as he must. I believe this promise brings us to the dawn of the New Testament. Here we find the good shepherd and his sheep. Here we find the Messiah and his cross. Here we find the resurrection and the life. It's all here in these verses of promise. If you've ever seen an opal set on a black velvet background, you'll know the darkness serves to highlight the opal's most beautiful colours. And so it is with God's promises here. The, The beauty of God's word is most clearly seen against the black backdrop of Israel's sin, which is undoubtedly lamentable, but it does make the beauty of God's promises all the more amazing to behold. This is a real gem of a passage. Let's enjoy it. And I want to show you some of its most striking colours, if I can put it that way, following the opal analogy shining through here. First of all, there's the colour of what I'm going to call the colour of divine assurance. Because notice what God says here, not once but twice in verse 12. I will surely gather. I will surely bring together. And that word surely, I think, makes this a golden promise in my estimation. It's one that cannot be broken, for God himself makes it. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. What a beautiful picture. These are the green fields of salvation, aren't they? A living relationship with the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. And who is this good shepherd? Well, it has to be Christ. He is the good shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. 
So let us praise him today as he promises to bring salvation to all people who will put their faith and hope in him. Like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of deliverance and freedom and relationship with God. And then thirdly, when we get to verse 13, we see the colour of royalty coming into view, don't we? Do you see that? The colour of royalty, for here we see the king at the head of his people. Verse 13, one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And who is this king? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Again, it has to be Jesus. So let's clothe him in purple this morning, the colour of royalty. But at the same time, I think we need to bathe him in red, the colour of sacrifice. For this king is one who breaks open the way and goes up before his people. And in my view, this is a picture of the resurrection. It's a breaking out through a wall, yes, but out of that symbolising a breaking out of captivity to freedom. This is Jesus defeating death and leading his people on to freedom and victory. When you put it all together, what do you have? Well, you have an outline of the gospel ready to burst forth with the light of eternal life, such as the promise of the king. For the Lord is our shepherd and he leads us forth into good pastures, even here, even now. And if you don't know the Lord, then hear his voice in this passage this morning and follow him, for he will lead you to those green pastures and comfort you with his strong love. This is the king's promise, the promise that God will gather his elect and rescue us up from captivity and then he will pass through before us the Lord at our head, This is all about the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's about the birth of the New Testament church. And I think it leads us on to the new creation. Praise the Lord. Well, that's the promise. Now we come to chapter 3. God's displeasure with lamentable leaders. We need to now look at the reality of the challenges of life and how God's people do fail at times to live the life that we are called to live. So let's move on now to consider the rest of our passage in Micah chapter 3 as God now admonishes these lamentable leaders of Israel, the rulers, the judges, the priests and the prophets. They are blind guides who lead the people astray and yet somehow they lean upon the Lord and convince themselves that everything's okay. For they lean upon the Lord in verse 11, do you see? And they say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. What a joke. It's like Dan Andrews claiming he's a Catholic while vilifying Christians in the media at every turn. It's even sadder when you see so-called Christian leaders denying Christ, affirming sin, and saying, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Now listen to what Micah the prophet says, chapter 3, verse 1. Then I said, 
Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? Do you think you can redefine reality in your own image? Do you think God doesn't see what you're up to? No, God will not be mocked. So here is the outline of chapter 3 I want to follow. In verses 1 to 4, Micah begins by focusing on the rulers and the judges. These are the men who should be faithfully feeding the sheep, but instead we find they are feeding themselves upon the sheep. That's not good, is it? They should be feeding the sheep, but they are feeding themselves upon the sheep. They are really lamentable leaders. Then in verses 5 to 7, he exposes the prophets who disgracefully speak in God's name based on how much you pay them. They prophesy for money rather than speaking the truth or glorifying God. They are lamentable leaders. Then finally, in verses 8 to 12, God's judgment is revealed. And Micah declares to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And this is a highlight of the passage too. Spirit-filled Micah speaks the truth as he must. And he is an example for us to follow today, is he not? For who is like the Lord? Remember Micaiah? That's Micah's name. There is no one like him, no one like the Lord. Micah is his servant, and he is spirit-filled, and he's going to tell the truth. He's, you know, our God is, is, is a God who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn to him in repentance and live. But when evil reaches a certain point, God's judgment must fall, because the people no longer fear the Lord, and at that point, his mercy becomes ineffective. There is a moment when God will judge, because he must. And so the whole nation will be ploughed economically, socially and spiritually. I guess as a foreshadowing of that greater judgment to come where we must all stand before the judgment throne of God and give an account for our lives. And when that day comes, who will be our advocate? Who will stand there for us? Is there one? And so this is God's judgment on the nation in those days. And it's actually the best thing that can happen to them. A reminder that God is holy. A reminder that God is just. Meanwhile, though, remember, the faithful remnant will still have the promises of God in chapter 2 to uphold them. They've heard what God's ultimate aim is to gather his people to himself. So that promise still stands. The Lord, though, is going to cleanse his church and clear the land before he comes as redeemer. Short story is, tough times are ahead. But God's people, the faithful, will not be discouraged when these things take place because they've been forewarned, they've heard the word, they know that God is with them in their midst and they will not be moved. So now let's look a little more closely at these things, starting with God's word against the rulers and the judges, verses 1 to 4. Let's pick up that passage again. Should you not know justice, you who hate good 
and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Micah's not happy, is he? He sees the corruption and the greed and the impact it's having on the people. These these leaders, they're wolves and they're cannibals. In their luxury, while they feast, the poor starve. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Justice is the last thing on their mind. In fact, their courthouse has become a slaughterhouse. They don't just take the shirt off your back, they take the flesh off your bones as well. What an awful state of affairs this is. What society can flourish when you've got lamentable leaders like this? They should have been leaders and shepherds in Israel, but they are heartless and cruel. But God will see that justice is done. So in verse 4, when the day comes when they're in need and the tables are turned, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them. Why? Because of the evil they have done. It's a very humbling thing to be a leader. It's an even more humbling thing to be a leader in God's church. It's an even more terrifying thing to be called to be the moderator of the nomination for a year. The responsibility is more than a man can bear, actually, when you realise what you're called to be and to do. Only the Lord can sustain the ministry. What does this teach us today? It teaches us that we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for more godly leaders. We need to pray for those who are in leadership, whether they're Christians or not. If they're Christians, that God will sustain. That if they're not Christians, that God will turn their hearts to Christ. Right now, we need godly men and women to serve in our community. And God will use you if you're willing to be used by him. Wherever he places you, in our community, in schools, in government, in media, in nursing homes, in law courts, in science, in arts, wherever the Lord is placing you, remember, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And it begins with you, and it begins with me, that we might be a people of prayer, that God would help us to be a people of courage, that we might speak the truth in love, without fear or favour, that we might learn from Micah, that we might follow Lord Jesus through the break, through the wall, and onward. 
Well, let's go down the street, see how the prophets are doing. We've talked about the leaders and the judges. What about the prophets? Surely things have to be better here. They're always getting messages from the Lord, right? No. No. The whole system, in fact, is corrupt by greed and self-interest. Listen to this in verse 5. This is what the Lord says. By the way, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. It's a difficult passage to translate, but I think that's not a bad attempt. So they bear their teeth. They proclaim teeth. They proclaim peace. Well, no society that, that treats people like this can stand for long, can it? You know, the spin doctoring, the manipulation of the truth, I guess what you might call the peace faking. Well, it's just too costly to sustain in the end. Eventually, the lie breaks down. But until then, you have to admit, the system can become incredibly tyrannical. As those who want the lie to become true work ever harder to sustain it. Of course, if you're on the inside, well, the system rewards you, doesn't it? It tells you that you're a good person. It tells you you can keep your job and your home. But if you start to question the narrative, watch out. Suddenly the whole system turns against you with all its power to suppress you and take away your rights and isolate you and bankrupt you. Until it all collapses in on itself, just like Micah says it will in verse 6. This word to the prophets, therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will cover their faces because there is no answer from God. If you keep staring at the darkness, in the end that's all you'll see. That brings me to my final point for today, which concerns Micah's bold declaration in verses 8 to 12. Spurred on by the spirit of truth, he now proclaims the consequences of sin to all who will hear. So in verse 8 he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. It's almost Christ-like, isn't it? Filled with the Spirit, spurred on to proclaim the truth at whatever cost. This is leadership. To think that Micah was able to stand up and say these things and do it not in hatred but in love. He speaks with passion but he speaks with compassion. He must have faced strong opposition in the process. I'm sure he did. But it didn't stop him from speaking the truth and saying what had to be said. It is a model of ministry that encourages me to go and do likewise in my role as moderator. And I thank God for the opportunities he's given me already to to put my name to some significant letters, such as the Andrew Thorburn letter. Last week, a letter on the problem of poker machines and gambling in New South Wales. 
There's opportunity to speak into our society. May God help me to continue to do that. Because, you know, even as I try to do that, there are processes within our church, within our denomination, that say, slow down, be careful, maybe it's not the time. I don't know what time it is. If you don't have a time to speak, you'd better do it when the Lord gives you the chance. Who knows but that God may require you to do the same thing, to stand up and to speak the truth as God has revealed it to you in his word, knowing that it might mean you lose your job, you lose someone in your family, you know the price is great. But what else can you do? If it's the truth. Of course you have to speak it in love. Of course you have to be gracious and careful. But silence is not an option. It's what the saints of old have always done. A couple of examples. Athanasius around 350 AD. One of my heroes. I love Athanasius. Five times exiled for exposing false teachers in the church who denied the divinity of Christ. Five times exiled, eventually he shared to one of his friends he felt as if it was Athanasius against the world. And God used him to bring the church through a very dark time and uphold the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the ever-living, eternal Son of God. Thank God for Athanasius. What about William Tyndale? He was burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Well, thank goodness he had the courage to do it. Or Martin Luther, who opposed the rampant idolatry of Rome. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in Germany for his opposition to Adolf Hitler. Or I think Marty Isles here in Australia with ACL. A a real blessing to our nation. Able to speak into the moment. And may God increase the strength of his arm in these increasingly trying times. Whether we are heroes of the faith whose names are known publicly or soldiers in Christ's army that Christ alone knows, I think God calls us all to be salt and light in his world. The only way we can do that is, first of all, by taking God's word seriously ourselves, personally, just like Micah did, and then to be willing to stand up and be counted come what may. Verse 9, hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Well, this is a deep state situation, isn't it? The whole system is working together against the truth and against the Lord. Leaders, priests, prophets, everyone is in on it. But God will not be mocked, as verse 12 makes clear, the last verse in our passage. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And it really happened. 
except not entirely in Micah's day. The thing is, you see, King Hezekiah repented of his sin. In 701 BC, the Assyrian army reached the gates of Jerusalem, but through the ministry of Micah and Isaiah, these godly leaders, the heart of the nation, certainly the heart of the king, was turned to God in prayer. And when the, when the threat came, Hezekiah brought these things before the Lord. And through that leadership... Whilst there was much devastation going on all around the city, yet the heart of the nation was at that time turned back to God and Jerusalem was saved and the nation of Judah survived for over another hundred years. So having excoriated the people for their wicked, willful ways and having forewarned them of God's judgment that's about to fall upon them, a very great miracle of grace occurs. Almost at the last possible moment, the people repent and the Lord relents. But had you looked out from sort of Jerusalem in that day, it would be the only city that didn't fall, the only place. Samaria had been destroyed some years earlier. The whole land had been pillaged. The population was decimated. The effects of sin were felt throughout the land. And yet Jerusalem was at that time saved and the temple continued as a site of worship right up until the time that the Babylonians came. Then in 586 BC, they turned Jerusalem into that heap of rubble and the temple hill into a mound overgrown with thickets, just as Micah foretold in our passage. Now, in the same way, I believe that tough times are ahead here in Australia. I talk to more and more people, even in my last visit up the, the north coast, uh, people are beginning to say they can see the trajectory and it's taking us over a cliff. Within the next year, I'm not a prophet, but I think we're in for some really tough times ahead. And Part of my ministry is to prepare you for those times that you might hold on to the promise Hold on to the promise, knowing that God is in control, and be prepared for judgment, for warning of the greater judgment to come. That God might say, I'm not to be mocked, I'm not to be ignored. And when that comes, will we as God's people be turning to him? Will we be encouraging others to look to him? Will we be able to maintain our joy and our peace and our hope? The power of Babylon is strong. Its tentacles reach deep. But God will not be mocked. You cannot mock God and get away with it. You cannot twist the truth or pervert justice or condone evil or promote idolatry and expect God to bless you. It doesn't work that way. God will always hold us to account one way or another. We've seen that in the history of God's people, even in this passage this morning. So as we wrap up for this morning, second point on the concluding points. Very important. I urge you to do this. Prepare for God's judgment, but pray for God's mercy. Who knows but that God may relent and save us from the worst of what lies ahead. But if he does that only for us to go back to our old ways, then I say forget it. What's the point? 
There has to be a, a real movement in hearts, doesn't there? There has to be a saving of souls for eternity. People have to realise that the Lord is God. Otherwise, what's the point? We are here to see souls saved from that final greater judgment to come. That's the main thing. Thirdly, I urge you to pray for your leaders. Pray for the leaders that you know to be humble and faithful. Pray for me and my work as moderator and as your pastor. Pray for your elders. Pray for our politicians, especially those who know Christ, that they might be faithful to him in the parliament. Pray for all our leaders, that God might do a miracle in their lives as we know that he can. And pray for yourselves too, to show leadership in your personal life and in your public ministry. Practice the presence of Christ. Be an ambassador for your king and be a blessing to your neighbour by having the courage to speak the truth in love. Because godly leaders are a gift to our church and our nation and we need more godly leaders. So be one. Be a godly leader. Don't be a lamentable leader. Be a godly leader. For he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah's going to say that a little later in chapter 6, verse 8. It's one of the key verses. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In fact, if you go out to the side into the vestry room, you'll see one of the stained glass windows has those words there. It's good to look up in the morning and be reminded of them. So we can all honour Christ with our lives and we can all be godly leaders Servant-hearted leaders in the context that God places us. And we can all pray for more godly leaders. That's the lesson of our passage today. May God apply it to our lives by his grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us without hope in the world, but you have set before us a kingly promise a promise that you yourself will come and gather your people, the remnant, the faithful ones who look to you. And we long, Lord, to know that peace and hope of salvation that you offer. Please refresh us and guide us and lead us. And in the time before you come again or before you call us home, may we be, in our context, godly, gracious men and women that we might lead others into these wonderful green pastures of salvation, into the glorious golden promises of hope, and into the life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.